Okay, we're continuing on in our series about uh, prayer. Um, and we, I've entitled kind of this series Lifestyle for Life. And the first one of these that we're going to be looking at is, is prayer. And uh, again, to me, as I look at the church and around, um, I kind of sometimes bemoan the superficiality of Christianity in our culture. It really does not seem to be impacting in a deep way uh, our world around us. And sometimes, if we're honest, it's not impacting our lives in the way that, uh, that we want it to impact our lives. And in John 10.10, 10, Jesus promises us abundant life. Um, and we've talked about the fact that, you know, we probably need to practice the lifestyle of Jesus if we're going to experience the life of Jesus in our everyday life. Um, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So as we're going to be looking at some of these practices that seem to be foundational as Jesus walked through this world, the one we're starting with is prayer because it seems so central in Jesus' life. As I mentioned last week, it was the one thing that the disciples looked at Jesus and saw what he was doing and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. We are sensing in you this connection with the Father that just is amazing, and we recognize in our own lives, you know, it's not there. We need instruction. And so last week, we looked at kind of the role of prayer in Jesus' life and the importance of prayer there in that fact that it seemed to permeate all of what he did. He would walk through life, and when there were major decisions to be made, Jesus would sometimes spend the entire night in prayer with his father. And that seems so foreign to us. Some of us are like, man, I have no idea what I would do an entire night in prayer. <laughs> I spend five minutes and then I'm not exactly sure what to say after that. And last week I said, you know, probably the best reason I can give to the why of prayer, why should we pray, is that Jesus prayed. But this week I want to go a little bit more in depth on that because I think sometimes we struggle with why should we pray, you know? If God knows everything, and as Scripture said, He knows our requests even before we bring them to Him. If He is in control of all things, sovereignly working out all things according to His purpose and plan, then why pray? Why spend time telling God what He already knows? That's a really good question, isn't it? And clearly, as we approach prayer, there's some mystery in prayer because there's mystery in terms of how God's sovereignty interacts with our choices and our will, and I'm not going to clear that up this morning. And that's just one of those tensions in Scripture you have to wrestle with. But I think there's something more to prayer than just telling God what we need, bringing our requests to Him. And I think prayer primarily is the main way we get to know God experientially. Or some of the old theologians used to say, experimentally. <laughs> Tim does lots of experiments in chemistry, right? You're moving the theory into practice. And to me, prayer is that place where we move what often is in our heads into relationship with Jesus Christ. 
One of the theme verses of our church is Second or Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the recognition that we are all people that are to be in process of growing both in the grace, understanding the grace of God for us and exhibiting that grace to others, but also in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to me, that means more than just our head knowledge about God. It's that knowing of a person, that connection relationally with a person. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. The next sentence that Jesus says is not, so prayer is basically pointless. The next sentence is not, so don't bother the father with your prayer requests. He's pretty busy. He doesn't have time to deal with all this stuff. He already knows it, so don't go to him. He doesn't say, yeah, the father knows what you're going to ask for before you even ask it, so your time is going to be much better spent serving the poor, loving those people around you. No, when Jesus says your father knows what you need before you ask him, the next thing that he says is, then pray in this way. And he gives the Lord's prayer. So far from being a disincentive to prayer, Jesus says that understanding that the Father knows everything moves us into prayer. And to me, it's like, well, what's the reason then? It's got to be more than just our presenting our needs before the Father because he already knows them. And clearly, it's not wrong to bring our needs to God, right? First Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares, your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So it's clearly not wrong to bring those to us, but I think as we grow and as we mature in our relationship with God, the primary thing that prayer becomes is not a laundry list of our requests and needs that God needs to fulfill in our lives. When we're babies, right? All we do is cry out for our needs to be met, right? And a good parent doesn't say, oh, I can't believe, come on, grow up, two-month-old. Stop screaming about, you know, needing your diaper changed or wanting to be fed. Get with the program. But if the person is 18 and still crying and screaming about those things, then there's a, there's a problem there. Chris, you want to get the AC? I don't think we turned the ACs on and... Uh, set it to 71 or 72, depending on who you talk to in the audience. <laughs> but the reality is that prayer is much more than presenting to God our needs. And primarily, I don't think it's about presenting to God our needs. Someone has said praying is not mainly to get things, but to get God. And I love that. Praying is not primarily to get things, but to get God. A deepening relational intimacy with God, I think, is prayer's primary purpose. And we know that in human relationships, right? We know that the primary thing that we're trying to do when we communicate with someone we love is not just to pass along information. If all I communicated with my wife was, okay, this is what the list needs to be when you go to the grocery store and, you know, this is when we need to cut the grass and all, you know, just the details of life. A counselor would look at me and said, man, there's something seriously lacking in your relational skills, Mr. Helvey, right? That we're communicating heart to heart, hopefully in close relationships. Someone has said the largest distance is the distance from our head to our heart, that 18 inches there. And as we 
approach God in prayer, I think prayer is that place where that distance is crossed, where we move from kind of our understanding of God theoretically and intellectually to an experience of God in our lives. And there's two prayers I want to look at from the book of Ephesians this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians. The first one is in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through the end of the chapter 23. And the other is my favorite prayer in Scripture in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter there. And I just want you to listen as I read these prayers for kind of that sense of relational connection and what Paul is longing for his believers in the city of Ephesus to grasp when they go to prayer and when they get to know God. Verse 15 of of chapter 1. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, or the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul prays here, I pray that you give him a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think the NIV translates it, that they may know you better. That God would open their hearts to know him better. And then he goes on to describe this amazing God that we know in his power and his majesty and all his ways. And Paul's saying, that's what I want. That's what I'm praying for you people. That you would know God better. And then the second prayer in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow the knees before the Father. That was kind of an uncustomary way for Jewish believers to pray. Usually they would stand up with their hands raised, but here it's an evidence of kind of the sincerity and the commitment that Paul had to bringing these believers before the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So Paul is writing to believers. They've trusted Christ, but he says, I want you to know in greater depth and greater detail this amazing love of Christ that's beyond our intellectual ability to comprehend so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. To me, that's one of the most amazing statements in Scripture. I think all of us would want to say, I want to be filled with God, right? 
So how do I get there? Paul says, one of the ways you get there is when you grasp his love. And that sounds so amazing. And then he goes on to say, now him who is able to do far more than we even ask or imagine. And one of those things is, is that the fullness of God resides in us. God can do this, but are we going to him in prayer saying, God, I want to know you. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. Give me a grasp of your love that's beyond my ability to comprehend just on my own because I want to know you better. One of the Puritans, a guy named Thomas Goodwin, gave this illustration. It's like, okay, as Christians, we know God loves us. And he was walking through his town and there's a father and a son walking along and they're just going through the town. And all of a sudden, the dad reaches down and grabs the son, just big arm embrace, kisses him and says, I love you. And then he puts him down again. And he was saying, did that child's status with that father change during this entire walk? No, but there was a time in that walk where the son experienced the love of his father in a more tangible and real way. And I think prayer can be one of those times where we feel the embrace of God's love. It seems that when we're in love, the natural desire is to communicate that love with the other person, right? You know, the classic joke is, you know, the husband says, yeah, I told my wife I loved her when we got married. If anything changes, I will let her know. And, you know, that's it's like, does anybody tire of hearing I love you? Would, you? would you stop telling me you love me, okay? It's just enough. I've heard that just way too much. Just back off with all the love stuff and telling me that you love me. I've never heard anybody come into marital counseling. It's, you know, the biggest problem in my marriages. My wife will just, or my husband will just not stop saying that he or she loves me. It's just way over. I can't take that anymore. And I think prayer is one of those times where we can experience the love of God. Hebrews 4.16 says we can boldly approach the throne of, of what? The throne of grace, right? Because this is a place where our acceptance is not based on our performance, but based on what Jesus Christ has done and our being recipients of his grace. So we approach that throne of grace, not of justice, not of a list of rules and regulations, but we approach the throne of grace to what? To find mercy and to receive grace in our time of need. So as we approach God, it's this time to connect and to just relish this relationship with God that we have that's based on grace. It's interesting that the two times in Scripture where the Father speaks to Jesus and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, both of those times are times of prayer. One was the baptism, and one of the Gospels says he was praying when the Father uttered this, and the other time was up when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. So I think it's significant that sometimes those times where we really are assured that we are loved by God and cherished by Him is time when we are just away with Him in prayer. And He just picks us up and says, you know what, I love you. You're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. It's good to be with you. In medieval days, the, the monks would pursue what they called the beatific vision, a direct experience kind of of the glory of God. And I never hear that talked about much. And I think they did some stuff that was kind of difficult and maybe off base a little bit. But 
I think that desire to experience God in a deeper, richer way is probably pretty significant. I've been reading, Tim Keller's got a book on prayer. It's he and Philip Yancey. Those are my two favorite books on prayer. So if you want to read a couple books, Philip deals more with the kind of pastoral, why do I pray? How can I pray in the midst of this broken world? And, and Keller is more on the foundation of prayer and how some great saints of old use that. But uh, Keller often quotes um, Puritans. And uh, he talks about John Owen, who is kind of the father of of the Puritans and, and talking about um, kind of his looking at this medieval practice and saying, you know what, that there's some struggle that I have with that, but overall the intent to push into God, God, show me your glory. I want to experience you. I want to have this relationship with you that's real. I'm tired of going through life, just checking a box of religion and never really experiencing you. Show me more of yourself. He extolled that pursuit. And Puritans are known for their emotional excess, you know? No, no, they're, they're not. But uh, John Owen um, actually said something quite surprising. Um, and this is Keller talking about, to behold the glory of Jesus means that we begin to find Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. It means a kind of prayer in which we are not simply coming him to him to get, get his forgiveness, his help for our needs, his favor and blessing. Rather, the consideration of his character, words, and work on our behalf becomes inherently satisfying, enjoyable, comforting, strengthening. Owen insisted that it was crucial that Christians be enabled to do this. He reasoned that if the beauty and glory of Christ do not capture our imaginations, dominate our waking thought and fill our hearts with longing and desire than something else will. We will be, quote, continually ruminating on something or some things as our hope and joy. Whatever those things are, they will frame our souls and transform us into their likeness. If we do not behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, then something else will rule our lives and we will be its slaves. What is he saying? That that emotional desire, that connection to God needs to be part of our lives. That if we don't have that, then there's going to be something else that draws our heart. And that thing is going to be what captures our hearts and ultimately enslaves us. I think we see that in the world today where this world is pursuing relationship as the highest end, right? That's what's going to provide meaning and significance and value in my life. And in one sense, that intuition, I think, is very biblical to recognize, you know what? Accumulation of a bunch of stuff, a bunch of status is not what's going to ultimately satisfy you. Relationship is. But then they're looking for that in a human relationship and whatever manifestation that comes in somebody's life. But what Owen would say is the desire is correct, but the application of that desire is wrong because that desire needs to be shifted onto God. Because whenever you put someone else in that place where you're looking to them for the satisfaction of all your desires, you're putting a weight on that relationship that that person can never carry. And you ultimately will be disappointed. 
Keller goes on to say, if doctrinal soundness is not accompanied by heart experience, it will lead eventually to nominal Christianity, that is, in name only, and eventually to non-belief. The irony is that many conservative Christians most concerned about conserving true and sound doctrine neglect the importance of prayer and make no effort to experience God. And this can lead to the eventual loss of sound doctrine. Owen believes that Christianity without real experience of God will eventually be no Christianity at all. That's a Puritan going on. Nevertheless, despite his deep concerns, talking about Owen, in the end, Owen concludes, it's better that our affections exceed our light from the defect of our understanding than our light exceed our affections from the corruption of our wills. That's a remarkable thing for a Puritan to say, Keller goes on. If we are going to be imbalanced, better that we be doctrinally weak and have a vital prayer life and a real sense of God on the heart than get our doctrine all straight and be cold and spiritually hard. Now that, he's, he's taken that from Owen, a Puritan, right? I've got a book by Jonathan Edwards called Religious Affections that someone said is the dullest book on religious emotion ever written by man. But the reality is in that too, Edwards is saying our emotions need to be engaged in this relationship with God. Mere doctrine is not enough. And what Owen said is, if I've got a choice between having someone who's warm-hearted towards the Lord and passionately pursuing that relationship and has a few doctrinal ducks out of a row, I'd rather have that person than the person who is completely orthodox and cold as ice towards God. And that's a remarkable thing to be said by a Puritan who highly, highly valued Scripture. But to me, those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. My prayer for us is that our head and our heart is engaged with God. But I think as Keller commented, the reality is that for evangelicals, often the head will be dominant for us. I'm reading another book. Uh, I'm going to push in. I'm trying to push into joy this year. It's called River of Delights by a guy named Rick Howe, who's a campus minister for years out in Colorado. He's talking about joy, but I think it's related to prayer as well. He says, joy, like all emotions, is interpretive in nature. It's perspectival. It flourishes and is most robust in a God-centered vision of life that is formed and informed by the word. Now, how does this become ours in a way that results in joy? What takes the word of God into the deep currents of our hearts where our understanding of life is formed and our way of living is shaped? What sinks the word into our innermost being where God delights to see truth at work? He says meditation and prayer. To understand why this is so, we can use Jonathan Edwards' distinction between two kinds of knowing. Quote Edwards here. There is a distinction to be made between mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things, and the exercise of speculative faculty. That's old stuff. And in the sense of the heart, wherein the mind not only speculates and beholds, note, the mind is engaged there, but relishes and feels. A cursory reading of the Bible yields a notional understanding of what is written, an understanding of words and ideas. Some people never get beyond this in their knowledge of the scriptures. 
It is in meditation and prayer in the sacred interface between the spirit-inspired word and the spirit-filled heart when the lines between reflection, worship, and prayer become blurred and even insignificant in that in the deep affections of our hearts, they're engaged and transformed by truth. It is this sense of the heart, the aim of meditation and prayer, that creates the conditions for joy. A notional understanding of God and his ways will change nothing about us. A sense of heart can change everything. And as you read through some of these famous Christians of history, you'll recognize how closely meditation on the word and prayer are related. In that time of going before the Lord and opening his word and saying, God, I want you to be real to me. I I don't want this just to be here, right? I I want this to be here because I want to know you. That's the purpose. That's, That's eternal life that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent, according to John 17, 3. This is what it's all about, relationship And I think the way to deepen our relationship is through prayer. Again, to me, the best is biblical brains with warm hearts. Both of those connected. I was really saddened recently to hear the downfall of Ravi Zacharias, to me, one of the best Christian apologists of the last probably 30 or 40 years. And I look at that and I look at what happened in his life and I said, Lord, what in the world went wrong? And I don't know the details there, but my question was, was Ravi's heart engaged with his God as much as his head was? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that just doctrinal understanding on its own without delight in the Lord can even be a dangerous thing. Owen recognized this, so many of the Puritans recognized this as well. The doctrine alone is not enough to sustain us in this Christian walk. We need our heart engaged in this process. This gripped me several years ago, and I was reading through uh, that description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And I'd grown up in an evangelical circle where it said, you know what? You know how your love is shown? Love is a verb, right? You know, feelings are at that the caboose, they don't matter at all. Don't worry about your feelings. You know, you need to base everything on fact. And what you do to show your love is just obey. So suck it up, obey. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. That's just how you pursue God. And you can go to passages and say, yeah, if you love me, you'll obey me. Yep. Okay. But then I read 1 Corinthians 13 and I look there and it's like, okay, this person gives away all that they've got. They even go to martyrdom. So to me, that's like, okay, if, if sacrifice, if obedience is what produces a love, then that should be the ultimate demonstration of love. But then Paul goes on to say, without love, that's just a bunch of noise. And then looking, and I was just reading this morning in Matthew 24, towards the end of times, it's, Jesus says that the love of many is going to grow cold. You look in Revelation in Jesus' criticism of the church in Ephesus, it's like you've lost your first love. And that's more than just obedience. It's not less than obedience, but it's more than obedience. God wants our hearts emotionally. He wants us to delight in him. And even if you take, okay, love equals obedience, well, one of the things God is asking us to obey is what? Delight yourself in the Lord. 
I can hear some of you saying right now. So you're wanting me to get all emotional when I go to God in prayer. Maybe. Chet has incorporated interpretive dance in his praying now, so that's really helped him. <laughs> Not. <laughs> A couple caveats here. I think God does want our hearts, but the first is to recognize that we express emotion in very different ways. For a while, there was a, a Brazilian family that came to church, and they're known for their just kind of subdued, stoic temperaments. <laughs> no, they're very expressive emotionally, right? And yeah, it's like they're weeping over there. Why? Do, oh, the crown ended. No more Netflix, you know, for a little while. This is taking me to a very bad place. But there are others of us that are more Norwegian in our temperament or Northern European. You know, it's like, Sven, I think the house is on fire. <laughs> yeah, Ollie, I'm really, really, really troubled about that. Maybe we should go outside now. This is such a catastrophe. <laughs> so we all express our emotions differently. But... That does not, I don't think, discount the importance of our emotions. They'll be expressed differently. But if my heart is not connected with God, that's a big, big problem. It's not some minor thing that's like, okay, you know, that's, that's the caboose. Don't worry about that. That's not important in our life. Because I think we all know when the heart and the head are in conflict, what usually wins? No. <laughs> the heart, right? How many people of you know somebody, or maybe even yourself, that knew the right thing to do, but then your heart was pulling you in the wrong direction? It's like, oh, forget it. I'm just going. So the place that we need to get is where our heart is connected with Jesus. And if we're not there, to me, one of our prayers is, God, reveal to me who you are. That's what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3. Help me to grasp your love. Help me to see you as the most amazing, most beautiful, most loving being that I'll be drawn into this relationship with you. I've said it before a hundred times. We will do for love what we will never do out of a sense of obligation and duty. I don't think we have to worry that much about obedience when our hearts are head over heels in love with Jesus. It's going to flow out of that. You know, when you first met that significant person in your life, you did all sorts of crazy things and no one was saying, okay, you need to talk on the phone for three hours and run up this massive bill. And no, it's just, you just did that. Why? Because you wanted to be with that person. And again, if you're at that place where you feel that, Flame is kind of gone. To me, be honest, go to God, say, God, that's not there now. I want that to be there. So the church in Ephesus says, you remember what that was like when you were tight with God. Repent, acknowledge. This is not something that's kind of ancillary or secondary. This is really important that our hearts be engaged with God. And he says, do the things you did at first. What connected with you with Christ at that point in time? Spend time with him. It's how we grow in relationships. And don't expect everybody to respond in the same way that you do, but ask that question of yourself, is my heart engaged with God? Or is it just, as Edwards would say, a notional understanding of my Savior? 
And I think another thing sometimes that hinders us from this deep connection with God is that we tend to feel that we can only bring certain emotions to God. The warm fuzzies, right? And so if I'm not feeling super warm and fuzzy towards God, then I don't go to God. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with smiling faces and only happy words. Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. This is the Son of God going to his Father, and I think you see this demonstrated in Gethsemane. And it's like, I really do not like what seems to be your program for me right now. And let's talk about this a little bit. I want to see if there's another possible way of going through this situation. It wasn't a stoic, okay, whatever God decides, I will do, and I will just shut my mouth. And No, I don't like this. Father, help me to find a way out of this. Read through the Psalms. If you want a really dark psalm, read Psalm 88. The end of that psalm is darkness is my basically best friend. Not a happy, happy psalm. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, why did you put that in there? Because that's sometimes how we feel. And the psalms are the expression of human emotion directed towards God. And as you read through them, there's all sorts of stuff in there. There's, oh, that's not orthodox. God, where are you? Um, God's omnipresent. Did you forget that, David? Don't you know that? Read your systematic theology. No, but in my heart, what I'm feeling right now is that you're so distant. And life is going in a way that just frankly sucks right now. And I want it to be better, Lord. What in the world are you doing? And to recognize that the Father's ways aren't our ways. And the Father's thoughts aren't our thoughts. What does that mean? That means that there's going to be some relational conflict in your relationship with God. Now, my wife said something early in our marriage, and uh, she said, Brett, with you, it's the healthy way or the wrong way. And I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I've learned through the years, through the wisdom and God's grace, that my wife is usually right. She's a much nicer person and better person than I. But as I deal with my Lord, I'm never going to be in that place where I'm going to say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. But the Lord allows us that gracious space to move towards that understanding where we get to that place where we say, okay, not my will, but yours be done. And that place where that is worked out, is wrestled through, seems to be in prayer with our God. Read through the Psalms. Again, there's the full range of emotion. I think it's Teve and Federalar on the Roof says, talking to God, he said, you'd have more friends if, the tre if you treated the ones you had better. <laughs> that reality is like, okay, God, what in the world are you doing in life? Help me to see. Psalms of Lament. And I think as we look here and Paul is praying, I want you guys to know the real God and come to him in prayer. As we look at prayer again, 
our tendency is to move first and foremost to that list of things that we want God to check off. And again, it's not wrong to bring those things. But I think as we look at prayer and scripture, if we look at Jesus saying that God knows what you need before you even ask, but then he goes right away, but, but this is how you should pray. We recognize that the primary reason we're praying is to connect with this God of the universe and to grow in our understanding and our intimacy with him. So let me ask you a question in closing. Is the real you, your head and your heart, the good, the bad, the ugly, the apathetic, the indifferent, is the real you connecting in a real way with the real God? We can play at prayer, we can talk about prayer, but to me, the one thing that prayer is going to do is going to deepen our relationship with the God of this universe. And I don't know about you, but I want that more than anything. She walked through this life for a while. And I understand the pull of all these things that are shiny and flashy and these super strong desires you have at stages of your life. I understand all that, but you get to that point and you realize, man, pursuing all this, even if I got all of that, then that's not going to leave me satisfied. Augustine, what our hearts are restless until they ultimately find their rest in you. And so I want to be at a place where I'm in that place where I can experience God in a deep and rich way. I want to push into that. And I've entitled this message, The Why of Prayer. Why do we pray? For me, the primary reason is to know God and to hear God say to us, I love you. I want you. Let's work on some stuff together. I'm not judging you. Come away with me. Let's spend some time together. The next week, we're going to look at the, the what of prayer and then the how of prayer. But again, to me, this is the most important thing. If we understand that prayer is this desire for the God of the universe to connect with us, what an amazing thing that is. I think it's in New Mexico. New Mexico or Arizona, one of the southwest states, there's something called a very large array radio telescope. I think there's about 28 of these massive satellite dishes on about 38 miles of uh, railroad track out there. And they're out there listening, listening for something, right? And radio signals, I guess there's not much energy. I was reading about this, that all of the radio signals from the beginning of time it's less energy than the energy of one snowflake falling to the ground. So that's why they need these massive things to detect this. You know, what are they doing? I want to hear, is there something out there? Am I, as a Christian, putting anywhere near that amount of effort to being in a place where I'm quiet and listening for God? And we're going to look at how we do that, but I think, it's primarily through opening his word and pondering it and say, God, speak to me now. I want to hear from you. I'm in the quiet. I turn my phone off. And I'm all ears. I want to worship you. I want to adore you. My heart wants to be connected with you. And, and if it's not there, just say, it's, I'm struggling to get there, Lord. Help me. Because as I said before, I don't think this should be an optional thing in Christians' lives. 
it's a vital thing. And I think as we walk, we recognize how important our heart connection with God is there and pursuing that. And we know that about most other relationships, right? If we don't spend time communicating with those that we love, then that love tends to diminish and grow cold and distant. And I think as I look at prayer, one of the things the Spirit is nudging us towards is let's put some effort into your relationship with God. We're going to talk more about how to do that, but to me, this is an incredible opportunity that we have to get to know the God of the universe, to experience life with him, not just as a notional thing, but as a heart connected to God. Do you want that? I don't know, but I do. So let's push into it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you just for Paul's example in prayer. He can't even think of one time where he prays that circumstances would change. But he always prays that people who know you would push in deeper to their relationship with you and get to know you better. So Lord, help us as a body to be people that know you, not just mere facts about you, but have experienced you in a real way. We're all at different places, Lord. We all have different temperaments. So I just ask that your spirit would be at work in each of us in a way that we can receive and we can understand. Lord, forgive us for the things that we've done that may exclude this place of prayer in our lives. Help us to make any needed corrections. Lord, use us for your glory. But Lord, help us to be people that know you and can go into this world having walked with you and spent time with you so that we've got something to give to others that's real. It's not just a list of theological facts, but it's a come to know Jesus who loves you and loves me. And let me tell you a little bit about him. So Lord, move us in that direction, I pray. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, you're patient with us. Lord, we're all beginners. We're all learners in this process. So move us forward without a sense of guilt or shame. But move us forward, we ask, so that we would know you better. I pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that we would be able to grasp your love in all its dimensions. It's beyond our human ability to grasp. So open our spirit to your spirit that we may understand you and because of that fall more deeply in love with you. Captivate our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll close with a benediction. I'm going to encourage you, those two prayers in Ephesians this week, if you would just kind of personalize those and just pray those for yourself as you go through this week, knowing that it's God's desire to meet with you. He wants to spend time with you. This is the doxology from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now 
and forever. And all God's people said, God bless you as you walk in intimacy with your Savior.